Tonight, let's talk about how the Lord Jesus is going to return. That is to say, the manner of the Lord's return. There's an answer for it. And to find it, we'll consult once again what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Why? Well, because the Lord gave it from the Mount of Olives. His disciples, his followers, you know, asked him questions about the future. And so he gave his longest answer to any question in the scriptures in the two chapters of Matthew 24 and 25. And we have been going through Matthew 24. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 21. For then, future, then there will be a, look, great tribulation. See, then there will be a Great tribulation. Well, what kind? Maybe his followers wanted to know. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. There's always been tribulation, trial, difficulties, stress. But this one is different. This is the great tribulation. So great, so intense, Is it so devastating that the Lord makes it clear to his followers nothing quite like this in its intensity has ever happened since the world began? They asked him questions. They're leaving the temple precincts and they say to him, when will the end of the age be? And so he began to give them a chronology of future events. And so he had spoken to them about this great tribulation period. In fact, so great that, according to Matthew 24, 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So intense is this time of the outpouring of God's wrath that unless it was time limited, the entire human race would become extinct. I introduced to you an alternative approach uh, to the one I think is most accurate, and it's called preterism. And it's a Latin term, and it simply means past. And those who hold to it, Uh, uh, suggest that these prophetic events are not future. They have been already fulfilled in the past. Pre-terrorism, pre-present day. In the past, it all took place. And they attach the fulfillment of these events to a very, very critical time in human history, A.D. 70. A cataclysmic time when Jerusalem was under siege by the Roman general Titus in A.D. 70. He came and imposed himself with his legions upon Jerusalem, slaughtered just about a million of its residents, burned the city to the ground, destroyed the temple, and made sure the Jews could not worship there actually for centuries. So, Uh, preterists, um, sincere preterists, are right about attaching significance to A.D. 70. They have good reason to do so, but I think they attach way too much to it and thus go astray in their thinking. For instance, 
Uh, Matthew 24, verse 22, uh, talks about the fact that unless those days of tribulation were cut short, no life would be saved. But that wasn't possible in A.D. 70. As evil as man was then and now, man then didn't have the capacity to destroy himself entirely. The Roman legions surely slaughtered over a million Jews, and they surely burned the temple to the ground, and they surely defoliated the Mount of Olives using its very trees to set the city on fire. I'm not minimizing the destruction, but it surely didn't threaten the existence of the human race. That capacity didn't exist in that time. So how in the world could preterists be right in saying that all this took place then already? Ah, but now, for the first time in human history, we are the generation that does have the capacity to destroy the entire human race. We've gone nuclear. It's proliferating. Even rogue nations are on the... uh, brink of being able to go nuclear and all it takes is one of those nuclear conflagrations and goodbye human race. By the way, it won't happen because the Lord Jesus is coming. But man has the potential today for the first time ever to destroy himself. So that's why I'm troubled by the preterist position in which and wish you would be as well. So I'm trying to make you upset because I don't want you to settle for that. I just don't think it's biblical at all. So the Bible says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. People could become extinct, but for the sake of the elect, a merciful God will bring the days to a conclusion. So who are the elect? Well, I don't think it's actually referring to us because I think that's our destiny right there. We be gone. See, we're caught up in the rapture. <laughs> this, this is for believers. And so the elect in the tribulation is not us. If you're a Christian, you're not going to go through the tribulation That's the time of the outpouring of the wrath of God. Why would God pour out his wrath on you, his son or his daughter, when as a substitute you already accepted the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of God for you? Uh, Didn't he suffer enough for sin? Uh, you, you, You may get angry at your children or grandchildren, but there won't be the outpouring of your unbridled wrath on their misbehavior. We'll give God some credit, and neither will there be the outpouring of his unbridled wrath on those who he has already redeemed. Ah, But in the tribulation, there still will be the operation of the Holy Spirit, and there still will be the capacity to be redeemed, because God is interested in redeeming people in every age. And so during this period, you will have folks who become tribulation believers, martyred mostly, for the faith. And so the text in the Olivet Discourse says, God, their Savior, will cut short this horrific time of tribulation for the sake of these elect. Otherwise, nobody would survive. Then the text goes on in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-three, to say, then 
If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't you believe it? Why does it say that? Have you ever been really, really desperate emotionally or financially or maritally? Desperate people do desperate things because they're hurting in their desperation. And that means desperate people are susceptible to all manner of deception. Because there is an enhanced hunger for deliverance. And so there will be those in the tribulation, tons of false prophets, pointing needy, desperate people to imagined arrivals of a deliverer. And so the real Savior, knowing this in advance, issues this Warning, don't believe it. If they say to you, here he is or there he is, he's in the desert, he's down by the water, don't you believe these guys? They're lying to you. And then it says in the next verse, verse 24, see, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, and we're patsies for that, aren't we? Anytime something dramatic or supernatural happens, Sometimes we're prone to believe it comes from the Holy Spirit, but even the other kind of spirit can do signs and wonders. Well, there'll be lots of that in this end time. So they'll show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. It does not say the elect will be deceived. It says if it's possible, they'll be deceived they'll be led astray. Which to me implies it ain't possible. Now, you don't have to buy this. Uh, You're entitled to your wrong opinion. But I think if someone truly recognizes the true Christ, it's not possible for them to be tempted to abandon him for a false Christ. If you're a new creature in Christ, if you've been redeemed, you've been regenerated, and you've come for the first time in your life to recognize who the Messiah is, if you know the true Christ in truth, I do not believe you're deceivable to the extent that you'll abandon him for a false Christ. In fact, if I think that happens, you never were redeemed to begin with. The Apostle John says this, and they went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But as it is, they went out from us in order that it might be shown that they were not really of us. Look, I don't want to scare you or anything like that. But it's possible to join a church and still yet not be joined to the head of the church by faith. I think the Bible calls that wheat and tares. And right now, the wheat and the tares are indistinguishable. I mean, I have no idea who here is wheat and who's tares, and you don't either. But the Lord does. So just to profess Christ doesn't mean that he really has come to inhabit your life. And so those who profess Christ are very deceivable, but those who have not just professed Christ, but who have really surrendered to him, turned from sin, accepted him as the solution to it, acknowledge his lordship and let him fill them up. 
those who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the mediator between God and man, I do not think they are deceivable to the, this extent. To this, plenty deceivable, but not to this extent that suddenly one would turn their back on this Christ who they say has redeemed them, and now they're worshiping Reverend Moon. I don't think that's going to happen. So anyway, the text says it's going to be a rough time. And then it says in verse 25, Behold, I've told you in advance. You see, only the Lord could do this because he could see things in advance. And verse 26, So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. Okay. So if these tribulation believers are not to believe the false reports of the coming of the true Christ, how in the world are those tribulation believers to recognize his genuine and legitimate arrival? Well, take a look at verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it won't be subtle. Make no mistake about it. Tribulation saints will make no mistake about it. It'll be his return, his second coming. How will he return? He will return strikingly and suddenly and visibly and clearly. And so there's no need to listen to false prophets saying, hey, he's here, he's there, as if it's some private experience. Good night. The lightning is not a private experience. It flashes from east to west across the sky. Good night. You don't have to imagine it, debate it, guess about it. Boom! There it is. So too will be the return of the Lord Jesus. And then it says in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Boy, is that a rough verse. That's a reference to Armageddon, Armageddon, which we spoke about last time. That's the last key event in this horrific time of tribulation. The war to end all wars, massive devastation, that's being referred to here, and brought to a grand conclusion, not by the United Nations or any human entity, no, brought to a grand conclusion by the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's the whole context of this passage. Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation, so can you see why I posted his second coming after the tribulation? Because that's what it says. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There will be nothing subtle about the return of the... Folks, this atmospheric cataclysm did not take place in A.D. 70. It has not yet taken place, yet it will. At the conclusion of the tribulation period, followed immediately by the second coming of the Lord. And so you don't have to wonder if you're a tribulation saint. Where is he? When is he coming? Oh my goodness, all this stuff in the atmosphere is going to be a signal that the Lord's on the horizon. So verse 30, And then 
The sign of the Son of Man. What is that? Sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, as they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Some say the sign of the Son of Man is a cross. I don't know. Some say the sign of the Son of Man is actually the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, descending from on high and hovering over old or earthly Jerusalem until the time of the millennial reign of Christ comes to an end. Wow, that sounds so good. And yet, what? (laughs) It's pure speculation. You know what I think the sign of the Son of Man is? Yeah, I, I think the sign of the Son of Man is the Son of Man himself. In other words, the sign which is the Son of Man. That's the sign, his appearing in the clouds the second time around. At any rate, whatever is the sign of the Son of Man, do you remember reading in the Bible uh, sometime in your Bible reading experience What happened to the Lord after he was uh, crucified and then rose up from death? Uh, Do you remember how he stood again on the same mount, Mount of Olives? Do you recall? And he was about to ascend uh, back to his father. And I I know this actually happened, so do you, because the event is actually recorded for us. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and on. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently, I would too, into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing. Men? Angels, they stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, just country bumpkin fishermen, you know, from the northern part of Israel. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? And then it says this in Acts 1.11. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now we know how the Lord will return, in the same way in which he ascended. Those who hold to the preterist position say the Lord already returned in A.D. 70, in a spiritual sense, a nebulous, esoteric, unnoticed, invisible, somehow the Lord already returned the second time in A.D. 70. All this is past, not future. You see, that's based on a misread of Scripture. Because this says he will return in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so that means, in answer to the question, how will the Lord return? Here's the answer. Personally bodily, physically, visibly, literally, obviously, publicly. That's the answer to our question. How will the Lord return? It's not 
a spiritual return. It's not a hidden return. He rose in full sight of witnesses bodily and the angelic witnesses. There's two of them. Why? Because according to the law of Moses, two witnesses make a statement in a court of law believable. So there were two men dressed in white and they said, what are you making? Why are you so amazed about this? You ought to know this. Followers of the Lord Jesus, just as you see him going, you will see him coming. How will he come? Not as a concept, not as an abstraction, not as a spirit. He was raised physically, visibly, bodily, visibly, and all the rest, and that's exactly how he will return. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. I love those words. Whatever else we differ on, and I know it's plenty, let's not differ on this. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. Do you know for every verse of scripture that talks about the first coming of the Lord, there are eight times as many that talk about the second coming of the Lord. You might say the focus of biblical prophetic literature is on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that ought to be our focus as well. It's tough to be alive, I think. <laughs> you do too. It hurts. Um, everything is not working the way it's supposed to. You can't even use the terminology dysfunctional family anymore. That's like every family, right? Since Genesis chapter 3, I mean, nothing's working too good. It hurts. Even Christians are subject to disease, to cancer, to all manner of things. The world situation is a little unnerving. Even the best of us doesn't seem to have real workable, believable solutions. kind of gets you depressed. Experts call it existential depression. You're not depressed about anything in particular. You're just depressed about everything. <laughs> you're depressed about existence. It's rough. So God gives us voluminous, encouraging words in the word of God to remind us of an upward view. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come. And when he does, all that will matter is that he came <laughs> back and we're with him forevermore. Oh, and that time, then we'll be immune to disease and accidents and death and dying and all manner of affliction and so on. Then we won't elect anyone to rule and reign over us. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords will take his rightful place on the throne and we'll go up to Jerusalem to worship him in the God-ordained reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. And all the nations will come
to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be too depressed. These days don't last forever. <laughs> In a relatively short while, it'll be over. So what do we do until then? I think we turn up the evangelistic burners. <laughs> I think we stop being discreet and diplomatic and politically and religiously correct. I think we tell people, Jesus said, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to him, it comes to the Father, but by him. I think we're bold enough to declare <laughs> that even in excess of one billion devout Muslim people, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, can never find the path of salvation. I think we just state it. I think we state that in spite of the sincerity of Hindus and Buddhists and uh, Jews and all the rest, this Jesus said in his word, he's the only way. The Bible says there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so that means Buddha and Mohammed and Moses and sorry. They, they, according to the scriptures... They're not the way. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I think we should get a little more obnoxiously evangelistic because everyone else is obnoxiously in our face about lies, crazy stuff, political candidates obnoxiously in our face about uh, unfounded promises and, uh, you know, dreams. One world, citizen of the world, will save the world. Goodness gracious. Can't even save yourself from a bad hair day. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not going to happen. I don't mean to be obnoxious in a bad sense. I guess just a little more outspoken. A little more passionate, a little more intent on redeeming the day because we don't know how many more left we have. And I know the Redeemer who redeemed us and has promised us escape from tribulation and the beautiful uh, excitement of being enraptured. I know he wants to catch up many others from every tongue and tribe on the face of the earth and I don't quite get this but I know it's true I know he wants to use us as agents of his so what do we do we don't let the news of the day drag us down we let the good news of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ lift up our gaze and in, it causes us to invest our lives in being living proof <laughs> of a loving, soon-returning God. Because it's not just a watching world. Oh, my goodness. It's a desperate world. Desperately lost, desperately grasping at straws, desperately hopeless, fooled into thinking whoever is the next leader of the United States is going to make much difference. 
never ceases to amaze me how naive we are. These candidates didn't make much difference on a lower level. And so now we think if we promote them to a higher level, we should. Come on. I didn't say we shouldn't vote. Please don't misunderstand. I didn't say we shouldn't do that. Pray for God's choice of the next. Whoever the president is, pray for him. I didn't say that. I just said, don't put your hope in who is in the Oval Office. Oh, for crying out loud. Look up. Don't guess. The Lord will return bodily, physically, visibly, suddenly, immediately, literally. And then there will be his earthly reign on earth. And I happen to know exactly when he is going to return. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you about it next week. <laughs> so. I was a missionary years ago with a group called the Navigators, and we had this song, and don't you worry, I won't dare sing it to you because um, it would be cruel and unusual punishment, but um, it, it, it used to cheer up ye saints of God. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to make you feel afraid. There's nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails. So why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry you worried at all tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. My fellow Christians, rejoice. That's the reality to end all realities. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing to us the end of the story, so to speak. It is a good ending. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so interested in us that you will not abandon us. No way. You have a declared and stated timely plan to come back. We are so, so grateful. Much to be done until that happens. Help us to be salt and light and holy and more effective ambassadors for you. Risen Savior returning in a striking, sudden, dramatic, clear way. Thank you, Lord Jesus. One day you shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There won't be any mourning or crying or pain because these first things chronologically will have passed away and you, upon your return, will make all things new. And we are absolutely anxious for that reality. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for telling us about it in advance. This we pray in your name. Amen.